Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Every time I start a new novel, and it doesn't matter how much affirmation you receive, you start with that question, can I do this? Yeah. Will it fail? Will I fail? Did I write the last good thing that I could write the last time I wrote? Hey everybody, welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I'm the online managing editor for Christianity Today and the host of The Calling. I'm here, as usual, with Morgan Lee. Morgan, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Hi everyone. I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today and more relevant to your listening needs right now, I'm one of the hosts for Quick to Listen. Yeah, so before we go into our uh, Tessa Afshar, who's going to be our guest on the podcast, I wanted to talk briefly about Quick to Listen, just make sure people were aware that it existed and how great it was. Yeah, everyone, give it a listen. So unlike The Calling, we are a weekly podcast. We come out each Thursday, and we do our best to find a current event that relates to everything that you Christians out there are thinking about. Us Christians. We're Christian. Okay, fair enough. You don't have to like other eyes Christians. I am a Christian. And I am talking about what other Christians are talking about that week. But the good news is, is that it's just not myself and my co-host slash our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Every week, we also bring on an expert to yeah. come give us more context and information and kind of strip away the noise from some of these other issues and really go deep. Yeah, it's good because it, it usually focuses on like a hot topic. So like something that everyone has like made up their mind about is pretty mad about or pretty excited about. And it sort of goes, well, it's not that simple. And kind of st- take a step back and you get a lot of nuance and help from an expert to help us sort of understand the tensions involved. So for everyone who has not listened to Quick to Listen before, I have a recommendation. It is episode 59, and the title of the podcast is Yes, Christians Can Love Jesus and Their Muslim Neighbors Honorably. We taped this one a couple weeks ago with Pastor Bob Roberts, who is a pastor from Dallas area in Texas, and we talked to him all about his relationships with the Muslim community, both in the Texas area and also around the world. One of the great things about having Bob on the show was just all the stories that he had, and he is a riot. Um, But he also does a really, really great job of talking about how you can be a Christian, very open, very convicted in your, well, how you can be a Christian who's very convicted in their beliefs and still have really solid, close relationships with the Muslim community. So that is episode 59, and I hope you give it a listen. So today on the podcast, we're talking to Tessa Afshar, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, She's an award-winning author of historical and biblical fiction. We talked about in the interview that she sort of grew up reading romance novels, which is an interesting perspective for someone to have. Even more interesting, she grew up in Iran as sort of a nominal Muslim. And then she, uh, when she was like, yeah, when she started reading 
things, she started reading romance novels. And so that definitely influences her work, though she would distinguish between romance novels and what she's doing. She calls that historical and biblical fiction. And the thing that's interesting about it, I think, is that she's really writing about relationships, like from a biblical context, which I think not a lot of people spend too much time on, right? Like the idea of like how people are relating Hmm. in those contexts. And so I find that idea intriguing. There's a there's a lot of twists and turns to her story. I'm going to let you listen and find out what they are. It's a fascinating interview. And I think this is probably a good time to just plug that in our recent July-August issue that just came out, we actually have a story or an interview with an Iranian evangelist oh, cool. in there who's talking about yeah. um, just how the gospel is being spread in Iran you know, I think many people who listen to the show probably know Iran mostly from like a foreign policy element and the United States has long had a tense relationship with that country. So I invite everyone to check out our most recent July August publication just to see what the church is up to. Um, and I, I just found it fascinating that there was like this guy who was like an evangelist yeah, in Iran. Totally. So if you're not a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine, you can do that at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. We have a special deal for you um, that will give you a discounted subscription price plus a bonus download created especially for our podcast listeners. Um, that Morgan, I, and Mark Galley all got together and put together for you. So that's orderct.com slash the calling to subscribe. Here's an interview with Tessa. Her latest book is called Bread of Angels. It came out last month. So check that out. Here it is. So where do you live right now? So I actually... Uh, my husband and I live in New England, where we have been for a long time. But I was born... How long? Uh, where? Gosh. Um, my math isn't that good, but definitely over 25 years. Okay. Clarification, point of clarification. Sure. Uh, we've lived separately because we got married recently. So, okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you've lived there for 25 years. I've lived in New England for 25 years. Wow. Uh, Patriots fan? I am not a football fan, Yeah. but yes, if I was going to watch anything, it would be the Patriots because I think that, that my boss and my husband are both Patriots fans, and so I want to be on the good side of both. My wife's side of the family are Patriots fans. And, and what's your... And my... Huh? What's your side of the family? So I just come from Southeast Alabama, which doesn't have a football team. A pro football team. We care about college football. So I'm an Auburn fan. But when the Atlanta team is in the Super Bowl, it's like I'm cheering for Atlanta. You know what I mean? Of course you have to. So that was a little bit tough. Yeah. And the Patriots, I don't know. It's like, (laughs) seems like they cheated. That's my thing about the Patriots, which is, I know, like opening up a whole can of worms. But just as an outside observer, it just like... Seems like maybe they che- I know you, you don't have to t- answer that question. Yeah, and especially <laughs> because I don't really care about football. So I'm going to keep my chips for yeah. disagreeing with you for something more serious. That's fair. That That's I actually good, uh, care yeah, about. Yeah, save yeah. your capital for yeah, something exactly. you actually care about. I only have so much of it to spend on that. Yeah. Okay, so let's get started on the stuff you care about. Um, the first thing we always ask people on the podcast is, how would you define your calling? I think to clarify it, first of all, what I've been trying to 
recognize in my own life and in the life of the culture that I live in mm-hmm. is is the ridiculous value we put on our destiny and what we do, mm. which is all really important, but it is not our identity. And so I think we live these lives of not right order. That our lives are in the wrong order. We seem to think we are what we do. So I think one of the things that I have been struggling to establish in my own heart in a deep way is that reality. Who am I yeah. in Christ? What is my identity? Because it's not what I do. So my calling comes out of that. So if my identity, if the core of my identity is that I am a beloved daughter, then I have a dual calling. My primary calling, I think, is something that everyone who's a follower of Christ shares. And that's that in this world, in, in this place that is not my permanent home, mm-hmm. I'm here for a reason. And part of that reason, a great part of that reason, is to be an ambassador. So I'm here to be a light. I'm here to share by the way I live and by the way I interact with people. Uh, I, I Part of my calling is to draw people to God. But I also have a very specific calling that I think only I can do, as everybody does, because we were, we were so uniquely created and there are works that have been set aside for us. So for me, I think that calling has been forming over the years. It's something between writing. Uh, I write fiction, obviously, for a living, and speaking and uh, ministry through prayer and mm. uh these deep connections that you can make through prayer with people. Yeah. Talk about the deep connections. Like what that's a that's an angle on that I haven't heard lately is this idea that prayer is not just a way of asking God for something or even connecting with God. I've heard that, right? But I've I've, I've not I don't often hear the idea of prayer as a way of connecting with other people. I think if you really want to pray deeply for a person in a way that goes to that core of who they are in, in that place that can change your life and change your experience of life. First of all, your starting point is that deep connection with your father. and But from that place, you start learning about other people. So when you look at someone, you see a human being. And behind those eyes, you see a life lived. You see wounds you see um, places that are vacuums, vacuums of love, of acceptance. Yeah. Uh, and, and you go deeper and deeper. I mean, the, a prayer, in fact, is a point of a good prayer time for me, is a point of profound connection, a three-way connection mm. with God and with the other person. And so the more insight you have into that other person, the deeper the prayer can go. Yeah. The prayer itself can be a revelation and an insight as you're praying. Can you give me an example of that? I pray with women quite often. Uh So sometimes women will come to you with what I would call their presenting problem. So their presenting problem is, I am experiencing a lot of anxiety. Yeah. So in a very loving, non-judgmental way, you have to sort through. I can just jump and say, okay, Lord, please... Take away the spirit of fear. Please cast it out. Please give her peace. Please, you know, whatever. And all of that is justifiable and very good and important. 
But what if I sat with that person and tried to find the root of the anxiety? Right. When did it first enter your life? Or what is it that's causing you to be anxious? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, it, is it a lack of something bigger than the fact that you just lost your job, maybe? Is it, was, there, was there something, you know, who are you that this particular wound besets you? And so at that point, you are connecting with a whole human being rather than superficially addressing something that's bothering them. What was the precise moment? Well, let's go back a little further than your calling. When was the moment that you uh, found Christ? Can you talk about that time? So I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Iran, and both my parents were nominal Muslims. So I grew up in that culture and worldview, mm-hmm. but I wasn't a practicing Muslim. Can, so Okay, so can you flesh out a little bit, just for our listeners, what it would be to be a nominal Muslim, like what that would look like? Pretty much it's what a nominal Christian is. So you are culturally a Muslim. Mm-hmm. You've been born into it, but you don't do all the five tenets that are asked of you. My parents didn't pray. My mother didn't wear the hijab. That kind of a thing. We did believe in God in a sort of general way. And, you know, we believed in being generally good people and helping the poor where, where we could. Yeah. But it was more, I think, a culture of believing in your own strength and doing things according to your own conscience. So the, the perspective is that... Th- from a lot of people, is that living as a nominal Muslim in Iran would actually be going against the flow. Is that I think, incorrect? I think today, even today, it's incorrect because uh, I know of people who live there who have to externally keep up appearances in order to keep the law, but internally feel very much like this. Okay. But of course, I grew up before the revolution, so okay. yeah. we so didn't have the, the pressure. We did not have the pressure. So it wasn't a, as as a, was it a religiously Muslim uh, country to at the time? Some, to some degree, it was. Uh, I think that the laws definitely were not as outright uh, Islamic as they are now. Okay. Women were not forced to wear hijab, and if you were caught holding hands with a person of the opposite sex, you were not flogged. Mm. I mean. Um, there is, again, it was sort of like the laws were very similar to the way we lived our lives, which is the Islamic worldview was definitely present, but the laws were not out and out Islamic laws. So kind of like living in the South and Christianity, in the in Southern United States and Christianity, a few years back maybe, where you could you could go to church, you could do all the things if you wanted, but if you didn't, no one was going to like have you arrested basically. Right. Precisely. Precisely. So that was the culture I grew up in. And then when I was 13, my parents were divorced. Mm -hmm. So my mom and my sister and I, we left Iran to go to England. And I went to school in England, learned English there. Mm -hmm. And I started attending a girls boarding school. So British school, it wasn't a Christian school, uh, but British school system, particularly private school system, is very, very traditional, which meant that on Sundays you go to church. Uh So they told those of us who were from foreign parts that we could sit up in the balcony and read our own 
uh, book of faith. Interesting. The problem with that was that the Quran is in Arabic and I spoke Persian. I could not read the Quran in its original language, which is the difference between Bible... Uh, for for Christians, you can read the Bible in any language and it's considered efficacious for your faith. Right. But the Quran has to be read in Arabic in order for it to count really yeah. or do anything for you. Interesting. So I could But not you never learned to read that language. I never learned Arabic. So essentially you had never read your ostensible holy text, right? I had not. But you also have to remember that that is not one of the five tenets of Islam. Okay. This whole uh, adoration of the Bible and the yeah. way we Christians consider it the foundation of our lives and this is where we go to find counsel and this is where we go to learn about God and ourselves. Mm -hmm. This does not exist in, in Islam in the same way. I mean, there's definitely a huge respect for the text but and and it's considered miraculous and given by God, but it is not one of the five main tenets. Right. You want to be Muslim, you got to pray the way that you know. Yeah. So it's very different. Okay. So again, uh, to me, the the command was a little unreasonable, but I was also just fourteen and I wasn't go going to argue with anybody. <laughs> so I used to read upstairs in the balcony romance novels because at 14 that's what i wanted was that was that like allowed it was was it like um holy your read your favorite holy text or just whatever no they didn't know i was just there okay. they, they said read read your holy text in the book i said that's not doable so i'm going to read what i like which is yeah. romance novels Interesting. so i mean i learned about love i did i yeah. did but not quite the love of jesus <laughs> right something a little different yeah i never quite i never heard the gospel while i was in that church okay. so that's uh problem yeah but at the same time i grew up in the u.s and in england and during all that time nobody invited me to church or to a bible study or you know like tonight we're going to uh, this great event at a church here in town where it's a women's event but the women have invited their friends who are not necessarily christian to right it. right Nobody invited me to anything like this. And I think because people did not want to intrude. And, um, you know, I appreciate that, but I never heard the gospel. Where did you live in the States at this time? Uh, so I, when I was in the States, I was in upstate New York. And then at that point, um, life sort of moved on and changed a lot. And when I was in my mid-20s, I went through uh, really a crisis mm -hmm. and it was a profound time of hardship heartbreak difficulty so during that time i had a dream mm -hmm. and in that dream i was by the sea of galilee and i knew in the dream that the throng of people by the sea of galilee were the followers of jesus and i saw a man walking toward me and in the distance i knew that man was jesus so I really wanted to see how, what he looked like. And um, I'll have to admit that my first response to him, you're probably not going to hear this in too many holy dreams, but uh -huh. um, my first response was one of disappointment. Huh. Because my only, obviously I had not read the Bible, but my only exposure to Christianity at this point was a couple of movies that they used to show in England during Easter and Christmas. Mm. And they were based on, they were sort of biblical books based on the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And in both shows, 
the person playing Jesus was very good looking. Yeah. He was, you know, he had the aquiline Hollywood <laughs> nose. In one of them, he was blonde and blue eyed. And yeah. so the Jesus of my dream didn't look like that at all. It was kind of homely. So my first response was one of disappointment. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, God, you couldn't do any better <laughs> for your own son. Right. Um, but as he drew closer, I could see his eyes. And in his eyes, I saw the most incredible love that mm-hmm. was indescribable. It was it almost brought me to my knees. Hmm. And now that I know him, I realize that's the that that was the love that went to the cross for my sake. Yeah. When he saw me, he knew me and love poured out. You but said you w- hadn't heard about you hadn't heard the gospel at that time really. I had not. Um did you have a category for divine dreams? Is that something like you you were like, oh this is what's happening. I mean, while I was in the dream, I was in the dream. When I woke up, the Muslims have a a large trust in God speaking to you through dreams or at the very least blessing you through dreams. Yeah. But I did not necessarily have a category the way I do now as a Christian. Okay. So, So the second thing I saw in his eyes was power. And I, I I can't explain it. It was uh, it was uh, a power for goodness, power for for it, w- it was like power beyond anything I had imagined. Mm-hmm. And that combination, that incredible tender love, mm-hmm. and this extreme power was not anything I had ever known. But yeah. in the dream, I experienced it to the degree, as I said. I kind of fell to my knees. And um, the miraculous thing about the dream was that I knew he was the son of God. Mm. I knew he was Jesus and I knew he was the son of God. And he asked me to follow him and I did. Mm -hmm. Now, when I woke up, I wasn't a Christian. I had three days of unshakable peace at a season in my life where I had had no peace. I I used to, you know, I, I, I wept all the time. So the the real amazing thing about it is the recognition of who he was and yeah. i've never read uh, philippians the same way because of that dream because in philippians it says uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that yeah. jesus christ is lord and in the dream when i came face to face with him those were the two things yeah. that i wanted to do was fall on my knees in adoration and also helplessly not because i wanted to but because I, you have no choice and, and to say, you are the son of God. But again, as I woke up, I did not have this experience of conversion because I didn't know what the gospel was and I didn't know what conversion was, mm-hmm. even though I had seen him face to face. But I think something had happened at a deep level. Mm-hmm. Some part of me had met Jesus and had prepared me. So after that is when people invited me all of a sudden to Bible study. Yeah. And gave me a Bible and I started reading. So I had to have a genuine process of conversion, but I was open to that genuine process, whereas before I probably would not have been. And that's that's really how I came to Christ. In that process, I could see the difference in the people who invited me. It wasn't a head knowledge that turned me mm-hmm. to Christianity. It was an experience of love, both divine and human. And so I I can say... My experience of faith was a falling in love. Mm. I fell in love with Jesus. Mm-hmm. What was um, what was your what was the first thing that you did after you sort of d- discovered 
the gospel after you decided that you had become a Christian? What was the first sort of step you took at that point? I told Jesus that I did not want to do anything extreme, mm-hmm. that this was between him and me. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's how it goes. Well, I'm pretty sure he laughed as loud as I just did. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is that's exactly what I said. And part of that was because when I looked at what was happening in Iran, to me, that seemed like the ultimate outcome of any faith when it's taken um, to, to such a degree where, where everything is. You were gun shy about like the public display of faith, right? Is that what you're trying to say? I suppose so. I'm trying to be um, polite. <laughs> so so I, I, I think the, the experience of what had happened in Iran had caused me to believe that uh, faith should be a private thing between mm-hmm. the individual and God. Sure. And so that's what I informed God. And before I knew it, I was getting baptized and I had invited my whole family. Yeah. And my dad and my brother came. My mom was still in England. And then after that, I was going to school to get a three-year degree mm-hmm. uh, in um, Bible. And I was being hired by a church, and I was writing biblical novels. So mm. it didn't work out yeah. pretty much, yeah. what I had said. What did, you, what did your parents, um, what was their reaction when you invited them to your baptism? Uh, those were the days before email, so you can imagine... My, I wrote my mom, I I called my mom and I told her and my mom wrote me a handwritten letter, six pages, and they were tear stained. Wow. They, they were not tear stained because I had become a Christian, like I had converted from Islam to Christianity. But how could I have needed faith of any kind? Mm -hmm. Why did I become suddenly religious? Because she could not comprehend the difference between religion and faith and the relationship that I was experiencing. Okay. Yeah. Um, my dad came to the baptism and then he started reading the Bible because he saw a change in me mm-hmm. and he wanted to know what had caused this. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he started with Genesis and he couldn't get it. He couldn't grasp when he came to the miracles. My dad was a um, a doctor and he was very common sense. Everything had to be scientific. So he'd come across the miracles and he would just start laughing and he said, seriously? <laughs> you seriously believe this? And I remember him throwing the Bible across the room bent over laughing. Huh. The thing is, I did not feel offended and I did not argue because I had been there. I knew how he felt. And faith is not one, at least when you're in that place, faith is not one but argument. Faith is won by an experience of love. And so he, but, so he didn't give up. That was what was amazing about my dad. Yeah. He didn't give up. So he started going to Bible study and he liked the people and he would come. And he got to a point where he said, okay, all humanity to one side, Jesus Christ to another. He's different. Mm-hmm. So he agreed that he was different. And then when he was in his 70s, my dad was baptized. So, wow. you know, my sister was baptized. Wow. My mother was baptized. Wow, yeah. that's cool. My brother is holding out. But. Okay. <laughs> God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So you mentioned that you started, you kind of you kind of breeze through this moment where you start working at a church, you start writing romance novels. Like, How did you come to that point where you realized you wanted to start writing? I started writing biblical novels. Okay. When I Before I had been a Christian, I had wanted to be a romance novelist. I mean, that would have been the life I wanted. But the Lord had more for me. Okay. And to get the more, I needed to wait. So there was a long waiting period for two reasons. Number one, I was very fragile toward failure and criticism. Mm-hmm. I could not bear the weight of even possible failures. So I I remember I was in my early 20s and I wrote a romance novel and they really liked it, but they said it wasn't for them. Could I could I send another one? That was the second try yeah. and I gave up writing because I did not have it in me at that point to bear the weight of rejection. Yeah. So the Lord had to build my character for one thing. Right. And then he didn't want me to be a romance novel. That rejection was from Jesus' protection. He had a whole different kind of writing set aside for me. And to get there, I needed to grow up mm-hmm. as a human being. I needed to internalize a lot of maturity in the Lord. Yeah. So I still have romance in my novels, but yes. that is not the main thread of them. I'm much more interested in the workings of a human heart. So, yeah, so let's talk very specifically about the difference between those two things, because clearly that's an important distinction for you to make. There's the there's what's the romance novels, which you talk about reading in church. You sort of grew up reading them in a way and during formative years, too, like they seem to influence you quite a bit. But you're writing these uh, biblical novels. So what is what is the uh, the distinction there? What are you trying to do that's different? I think. A lot of people miss the point when they don't understand why romance is so important to women and particularly in formative years or even later. There is a part of the heart that's been designed to experience being chosen by someone very, very special. Mm-hmm. Even though you feel like maybe you're very ordinary, someone very special chooses you, recognizes you as special, and adds worth to you. Mm. And I think that. That's precisely what the romance novel, to some degree, I mean, obviously, the genre can go far afield, but I'm just talking about the basics of it. Sure. And that's something that God has planted in our hearts as women, and Jesus himself satisfies, he meant to satisfy it. He meant to say, yes, I see you as you truly are, Mm -hmm. I see all the warts, and I love you anyway, and I choose you. Yeah. And because I choose you and because I save you, I give you worth. There's a, I don't know if you ever watch, um, there's the British Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that? I saw like two episodes. Okay. So I don't want to give away the, this. The, in season four, so British Sherlock is Sherlock Holmes, but he is in contemporary London. 
And there is uh, one of the episodes, someone that he really cares for jumps in front of him and takes the bullet for him mm-hmm. and dies. Mm. And so because they die, he gets to live. Mm-hmm. And he says something along the lines, of, and I'm not going to get the quote exact, but he says something along the lines of, because this person died for me, they conferred a worth upon me. And that's precisely what Jesus has done for me, mm-hmm. has done for us, yeah. is because he has died for me, that worth that we are all desperate to have, that's been conferred upon us. So that's really the heart of a romance novel. The normal romance novel is lived on this superficial basis. Yeah. It's just on the superficial basis, and the heart of the novel is about the romance. Mm-hmm. I am more interested in, okay, the part of the heart that gets broken but can still be loved, the part of the heart that starts seeing itself in a bent, twisted way so that when I look in the mirror, I see myself through a veil of shame, yeah. a haze of rejection, a, a diminishment of the self that mm-hmm. Jesus would die for. You know that I have enough value that he would die for. But what I see is these things. So I'm interested in how do these things get into the soul and how can you pluck them out? Yeah. Was there ever a time that you doubted that this is what you're supposed to be doing? Oh, my goodness. For years and years. And in fact, every time I start a new novel, I um, and it doesn't matter how much affirmation you receive. You Every time you start, you start with that question. Can I do this? Yeah. Will it fail? Will I fail? And did I write the last good thing that I could write the last time I wrote. Do I have mm-hmm. more in me? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, I find the human soul has an endless ability for self-doubt yeah. and insecurity. Yeah, I relate to that. <laughs> 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 this is something I talk about a lot on the podcast. Is like I have this, um, well, I don't know if I talk about it that much, but I feel like um, one, one thing that I relate to is this, this self-doubt thing and this fear of failure. Right. Like, I think it's a universal thing, but probably harder for some people than most. And this this idea of having to overcome um, what you talked about, having to overcome just hearing that's not right for us can be a really painful thing for some people to have to overcome and like work through. It really takes a character building exercise, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, again, that's the other thing is you have to ask yourself, well, why is it? Yes. And I think that it's not, for most of us, it's not one thread of the why. Oh, if I just pluck this thread, I'll be okay the rest Mm -hmm. of my life. I think that it's a very complicated weaving of reasons. And so you you have to work at it quite a lot. Yeah. It's a deeper thing than just be more self-confident. It's an indigestible thing. Yeah. It's sort of like, say, I'm really hungry I don't know what to eat, so I'm going to eat grass. Where yeah. it's just going to going, it's just going to come out the other end, and it's not very pretty. Right. And you will not be <laughs> yeah. fed. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's an indigestible thing. You cannot receive confidence in that way. Again, as as I said, it's it's so complex. One thread of it is, uh, why am I so afraid of failure? Is it because I see who I am in what I do? Mm-hmm. Therefore, if I fail. I fail. Mm-hmm. It's not that this thing failed. Yeah. You know, I, I failed at this thing, but yeah. I fail. Yeah. And that's a part of it. The other part of it is, I think, also just uh, having not received 
the appropriate affirmations mm-hmm. uh, that that you needed at the right times. Mm, yeah, you're but, making up for something. Yeah, yeah, you're making up for something precisely. But I, but I really think at the same time, I really think that Jesus loves it when this particular wound is to the surface. Right. He loves it because he gets to play in his fav- some of his favorite rooms in our hearts mm. when, when that's to the surface. Yeah. What would you say is your biggest struggle in working out your calling of writing? And My, I, I think, and this is something that I actually wrote in, in, the, in this book. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest struggle is to some degree a, a certain kind of fear. I, I've always been... I've always struggled with fear. Mm-hmm. Certain aspects of it I have overcome with the Lord. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me anymore. Yeah. But there are still aspects of it because fear has a lot of faces. Bread of Angels, it starts with this short letter that she is writing. And in Romans, when Paul is talking about what can separate us from the love of God, mm-hmm. you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And one of the things he names is, or the sword. Can the sword separate mm-hmm. us from the love? Yeah. With the, the particular word he uses, it's, it's a makera, which is not a, um, it's not a sword we see a lot of, but it was fairly common. It's a short sword. And it usually was used, apparently, to give the killing stroke. So imagine yourself now you're fighting somebody and they're giving you the killing stroke, but in order to give it, they have to come really close. Mm -hmm. So it's not this long thing that they can do it from here so you're safe. It's in your face. It's intimate. It's very intimate. Yeah. So as your killer is killing you, all you see is their face. Mm -hmm. And you forget the world. Is the sky blue? Is the grass green? Is it beautiful? How are my kids? You don't know and you don't care. Mm-hmm. You are drowned in the one who's wielding a makera. And I think in some ways, all of us have a makera being wielded. Mm. The thing that we see that gets in the way of us seeing God. Yeah. Because the thing is so close that we see it more clearly than we see Jesus. Right. So for me, it was different iterations of fear. I think right now the one that I'm struggling through is not meeting expectations. Mm. You know, people who have gone through a lot of trouble and they have an expectation, what if I don't meet them? Yeah. And here's the reality. There will be days where I won't. Yeah. There will be days where I will fall short. Mm-hmm. And there is no way I can prevent that. Yeah. So either my soul has to learn to allow God to cover that gap and give up this desperate need to control it, or else I'm going to have to live with this Makera all my life. Right, right. So what is my choice? Yeah. You know? uh, do you have someone that inspires you in terms of like that you look up to when it comes to the work you're doing? There are a lot of people who inspire me, and my husband inspires me because... He's, um, he just keeps going. <laughs> he just keeps going. He has this incredible ethic and uh, he, he can be really discouraged and he just gets up and keeps going. Mm. So I love that about him. My best friend, she's an incredible human being. She's 10 times more gifted than I am. One of the most um, just intelligent human beings, an amazing writer. 
and she has a special needs son and mm-hmm. she stays at home and takes care of him mm-hmm. and that's her world yeah and what she is able to do in terms of pouring out and sacrificing it's unbelievable or the kind of wife she is yeah i you know these these are the people we learn from our our everyday people right does that in, does that um find its way into your books somehow I think so. Friendships, relationships, they're always at the core of all my books because yeah. that's where we learn. That's where we learned about God. That's where we learned about ourselves is through relationships. Who am I? I see the answer to that in the reflection of the way people treat me. And then so if some of the information I received was faulty, I also have to work it out through relationships. Right. Yeah. R- writing is so hard because especially when you're writing fiction like this it's just really about about relationships and you really have to know about how people work you have to have a keen insight into how relationships work and it and it fe- it feels like um it's so hard to strike that balance because writing is such a solitary exercise you're really not when the in the act of doing it you're not interacting with people how do you strike that balance it's like a well You don't go to the well for the well. You have to have water in the well. Yeah. It's the water that feeds you, yeah. that that uh, quenches your thirst. Yeah. So writing is like that. If your well is empty, you can sit down and you can write and you can be a brilliant writer as far as form is concerned mm-hmm. and as far as linguistically, but there's nothing in it. Yeah. So your well has to be full already. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, especially for those of us who love books and reading or even uh, films there are times when i'm so deeply in a book where i resent when someone wants to talk to me <laughs> right i right. do because i like the world of the book and yeah. i love i do not want to be interrupted yep. and that's sort of the god ungodly broken part of me that prefers to be by myself in a world that's not real mm-hmm. than to come out of it and be present to someone who needs me yeah so I always have to battle or at least sometimes I have to battle the inclinations of my flesh mm-hmm. to choose the better thing. And the better thing is always human beings. I figure if Jesus went to the cross for that, he went to the cross for human beings to have a chance at commu- communion with him mm-hmm. and true communion with one another which was broken that I have to build my life around that as well. Yeah. Last question we ask everyone. and it's this it's a little complicated so um if you got into a time machine you went back in time and you could introduce yourself to yourself at any time what would you tell them i would go back a little earlier i would say discover chocolate sooner <laughs> when did, when did you discover chocolate you know i mean iran in iran chocolate was not my favorite thing honestly i mean okay. we ate much much more healthily is it different is chocolate different it just wasn't a big deal it really wasn't we um, we we ate a lot of fruit and then every once in a while we had ice cream ice cream was a big deal okay. but yeah. chocolate just wasn't the thing huh. but uh but yeah discover chocolate and discover jesus earlier i just think life would have been so much simpler if i had known jesus Uh, sooner than I did, and that was uh, that was when you're twenty something. I was in my mid twenties. Yeah. yeah. So you went through your formative years in high school and all of that stuff. College and all yeah. of that. Yes. What? How do you think that that would have been different if you'd known Jesus? 
I think my choices would have been better. Yeah. Uh, when you know Jesus, there's something funny about Jesus. You, if you really walk with Him, it's easy to wander away from Jesus. So it's you can totally be a Christian and mess up your life. I'm not saying you can't. <laughs> but if you're if you're chummy, if you're really close, if you're fully attached, mm-hmm. it's really hard to deceive yourself into making bad decisions and calling them good. Because there's a, there's a certain uh, structure around you that holds you, upholds you to a standard. You've been listening to The Calling. Tessa Afshar is the author of Bread of Angels. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Tessa Afshar. Or you can check out our website at TessaAfshar.com. That's T-E-S-S-A-A-F-S-H-A-R. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us so very much. The Calling is produced by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.